We're going to kick things off. I'm going to say something, and I think most of you will know what to say. If not, just listen once or twice, and you'll pick it up pretty quick, okay? So when I say, God is good, and all the time, how about over here? God is good, and all the time, God is good. Amen. See, I remember distinctly uh, when I was about 10 or 12 years ago, I was uh, in our church in Casper, and we had a missions pastor come in. He was a a pastor by the name of Don Osman, and he was a native of Sierra Leone who we had partnered with, and he he had come to America and been educated and gone back uh, over there to do ministry, plant churches. And uh, when he stepped in, I had never heard that before. I, we didn't do that as part of the liturgy in my United Methodist Church that I grew up in. And so he stepped in, and he was about six foot five and probably a good 250. And in his big, booming voice, he said, God is good. And suddenly, everybody behind me said, all the time. And then he said, and all the time, God is good. And I had shivers. And then he, he added, but the devil is bad <laughs> all the time and all the time. The devil is bad. And it made an impression on me, and I realized I was a little late to the party on that one, uh, but that this is a well-known call and response. And we're in a series titled Desiring God, and we're in week four of that series, and today we're going to be talking about desiring goodness, desiring goodness. So if you've missed one of the first three, these have kind of been stitched together a little bit. If you missed one, you can go to our Facebook page, you can go to YouTube, you can go to our website in the media tab, or go to Apple Podcasts, and you can listen, and you can watch, and you can catch up with us. But we just, we included the, the uh, Lord's Prayer in the opening this morning because of that phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You see, God's will is good. It's only good. It's really good. And it's good all the time. What He desires for each and every one of us, what He desires for each and every one of you, what He desires for each and every person out there that's not in here, that's not worshiping Him this morning, is good. His desires for us are good. And so by desiring goodness, we're desiring God's will to be done in us and through us. And we know that, we believe that, and yet there are a lot of people that don't know that. There are a lot of people that don't just know the liturgy. They don't just know that when the pastor says God is good, they're supposed to respond all the time. They don't even know that God is good. And it's hard to believe that. It's hard to feel that. It's hard to say God is good all the time when you're hungry, when you're homeless, when you're lost, or maybe when you're grieving, and you've never been introduced to a God who is good all the time, or you're in the midst of depression, or anxiety that's crippling, or despair and hopelessness that are overwhelming. It's hard to know that there's a God who is good when you've never been introduced to Him, when you've never experienced, when you've never tasted and seen that God is good, as the psalmist says. And this became a little more real to me a couple of weeks ago. I was invited to be a part of a poverty simulation. And maybe you've had an opportunity to do this at some point in time. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to do it here at some point in time. It was a deeply 
impactful experience where I gathered with 40 or 50 people and we were split up into random pairings with families of various sizes, uh, individuals, couples, families of three, four, five, six, and we were presented with real-life scenarios from a, a community in Missouri. And these were real families and real things that had happened to them that had put them on the brink of poverty. My family was a family of five. I had been a computer programmer for 20 years and then was suddenly laid off due to downsizing. And so we went from a steady paycheck and being able to make our mortgage and make our car payments and make our student loan payments and all of those things to within a few months we were on the brink of poverty. And my wife worked, uh, but it was just a, you know, slightly better than minimum wage job. I had a teenage daughter who was pregnant and two young boys with some behavioral issues that were manifesting as they walked through the stress of what was taking place in their family. And so this scenario was very elaborate. And then there were social, um, social things surrounding these families. And so we would have to pay the mortgage. We'd have to get food. We'd have to go to work. We'd have to go to community agencies that might be available to us. We, we had to go through all of the things, and it was condensed down into about 15-minute chunks, which represented a week. And the goal of the simulation that was, as you go through these four weeks, can you, can you stay in your home? Can you, can you keep from losing the home? And it was a powerful, powerful experience to, to feel the pressure, to experience the good luck and the bad luck, the highs, and the lows, to realize what a challenge transportation can be when you only have one car, and, and so who's going to take the car, and who's going to take the bus, and, and to feel the need for more time constantly. There was never enough time, and I think that was intentional with the way the simulation was put together, and it didn't take too long. About the third week, this sense of hopelessness started to settle in, and I was thinking, I don't know if we're going to make it. And then a couple of things went our way that third week, and it looked like we were going to make it. We were going to pay all the bills, just barely. We had to cash in savings. We had to pawn the, the TV. We had to do all the things that people on the brink of poverty have to do. And then we had some bad luck, and we were quarantined for the fourth week. It was just a random thing. We couldn't leave the house. Hadn't worked long enough to accumulate paid time off, so there was no income. We couldn't go out. We couldn't access service. And I, I remember thinking, I wonder if people in this situation know that God is good all the time. Unless you've met him and encountered him prior to a situation like that in real life, I don't know that you would feel like God is good. And what was ironic was we had been so busy trying to do it ourselves, trying to get work, trying to pawn the, the TV, trying to cash out some savings, minimal savings that we had, that we hadn't even accessed the community resources that were available. We hadn't even accessed the faith resources that were available. We had just been in, in crisis mode the entire time. And as we processed this afterwards, we found that a couple of people, that it was planted, it was kind of a setup, but a couple of people had done crimes of opportunity where money was left on a table and they stole because of the desperation that they were feeling. And it just brought a, a freshness and awareness of how deep that need can be and how quickly people can get there. That so many people do really live paycheck to paycheck, and when the paycheck goes away, it gets real serious real fast. And I, I walked away from it realizing that if I didn't know God was good going into a scenario like that in real life, I don't know that I would have come to that conclusion. 
And so today as we think about desiring goodness, we can't just we can't just desire God for what he can do for us. We have to desire God for what he can do in the world through us. For for what he can do in showing the world that God is good all the time through us, through our lives. And this message resonates in a church like Linwood where a lot of people are doing well. A lot of people are not on the brink of poverty. A lot of people have resources. They have time. They, they have the, an, an ability to make an impact, and we do that on a regular basis, and we celebrate that whenever we, we do a special offering and 42 churches will be planted around, you know, around the world, or uh, we, we set a project before us to, to help one of our missions partners, and it goes above and beyond. We're a generous church. There's no doubt about that. And so we're going to call attention to this today, the idea that we are not meant to be reservoirs of God's goodness. We're meant to be rivers, not to get as much of it as we can, but to let it flow through us into the world around us. And our bottom line, I'm going to give it to you early, I'm going to give it to you often, our bottom line is that what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you hope for shapes what you live for. And I saw that posted, it wasn't given any credit. And I thought, oh, that's really good. And I tried to find out who might have said it first. And there were three or four people that came up. So I don't know who said it first. I'm not taking credit for it. But I do believe that it's true. And I believe the passage that we're going to look at in Scripture, it resonates very, very deeply with that. So I want to give that to you early. And we'll read it often or return to it often. But as far as God's Word is concerned this morning, I want to encourage you to open up a Bible to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And this is kind of towards the back after some of the bigger letters. Uh, you'll find it. Um, and I'll give you a minute to get there. If you're online, you're welcome to take a moment and open up a Bible. If, it'll also be on the screens behind me. But I want to read these two verses, verse 11 and verse 12, and then we'll circle back and walk through it slowly uh, because Paul is, is making a very good point, and he's actually praying for this church in Thessalonica that he had planted. And so he says in verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. What does he pray? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we look at verse 11 and that phrase, with this in mind, well, he's kind of concluding a little section, verses 5 through 10, verses 5 through 10, with that in mind. And in verses 5 through 10, he's addressing a situation that's taking place in this church where there's a lot of persecution for these new believers. And some of them have lost their jobs, some of them have been beaten, some of them have, have lost their lives, maybe. And so in verses 5 through 10, he's talking about how justice is guaranteed when Jesus returns. That we can await that. We can hope in that. We can know that God is good all the time, even when the circumstances aren't that good, and that the wicked will be punished and the righteous will be vindicated. And so to a church that had been experiencing persecution, a young church, a church where people had left a lot behind in order to come into the family of God, that was encouraging. With this in mind, he says, with this in mind, 
We constantly pray for you. Well, that would be encouraging as well to know that Paul, Timothy, Silas, these apostles, these ones who had been sent, who had planted the church, who had established the church, and then who had moved on to plant another one, that they're constantly praying for them. They're remembering them in their prayers. They're asking God to show himself faithful to them. He says, we constantly pray for you, and here's what we pray for you, that you would live lives worthy of his calling, that God would make you worthy of his calling. And I would define that as living now as we will then, living now as we will for eternity, living in the calling that God has on us now, in this case, maybe to be faithful and to endure and to persevere in the face of persecution, in the face of suffering, in the face of loss. But basically, Paul is saying, don't wait until then to live out your calling now. Don't wait until we die to start living in the rhythms of the kingdom. Don't wait. And he adds to that, and that by his power, he, God, may bring to fruition, bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. I love that phrase, to bring to fruition. I think about fruition. Fruition has that little word fruit right at the beginning of it, right? And what do we know about fruit? Well, fruit, from a a botanical sense and, and from a culinary sense, fruit is that which has seeds in it, right? Seeds that can reproduce. Vegetables don't necessarily have seeds contained in the vegetable. They have seeds that come out of the top or something like that. And so fruit is that which contains seeds. And so I've often been quoted as saying that, yes, tomatoes are a fruit. Wisdom is knowing tomatoes are a fruit, Sorry, knowledge is knowing tomatoes are a fruit. Wisdom is not putting them in a fruit salad. Okay, not all fruits are culinary fruits. They may be botanical fruits, and you can Google that or look it up on Wikipedia later today. But the idea of bringing to fruition, bringing to maturity, that God in His power would do this with our calling, with our faith, to bring to fruition, to bring to maturity, to make fulfilled or complete to be able to reproduce. When we talk about maturity in the scientific sense, we're talking about that which is able to reproduce. That's a mature bird or a mature adult in the natural world. They're able to reproduce. And our faith should be reproducing itself in other people's lives. They should be looking at us and the way we live our lives and the way that we are engaged in the poverty around us and the way that we walk through persecution and the way that we pursue Jesus and say, God is really good all the time. Our employer should say, I wish every single one of my coworkers, I wish every single one of my employees worked as hard as that believer. I wish they were all believers because we live our faith in a, in a transparent way. We live our faith in an authentic way and it, it brings to fruition. It makes fulfilled. It completes. It's not halfway. It's not hit away. It's reproducing itself. We're making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We do this individually. We do this corporately. And he adds to that and clarifies that, that, that our every desire for goodness, the series is talking about desiring God. This message is talking about desiring goodness, desiring goodness as we desire God. So he's talking about what we want, right? Desiring goodness. That's what we want, And it begs the question, how much goodness do we really desire? How much goodness do we really desire? Like, do we really desire the eradication of poverty? Do we really desire 
trials and persecutions that would show our faith to the world around us? Do we really desire every desire for goodness? Because if not, maybe we've already gotten what we desired. Maybe we just wanted it for ourselves. Just me and mine are okay. Or like Hezekiah, at least there'll be peace in my day. God didn't look too favorably on that. And so he continues, every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. Now we're getting into what we do. He starts with what we want. And then he moves to every deed prompted by faith. Everything that we will do prompted by the faith that we have, prompted by the belief that we have, prompted by the trust that we have that God really is good all the time, that He takes care of His own, that we can be generous because He is generous, that we can give freely because He has given freely, that we can serve because He died for us and He will empower us and equip us. And so if every desire for goodness is talking about what we want, every deed prompted by faith is talking about what we do. And His goodness compels us into action, compels us into deeds, compels us into good works, because what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you desire determines what you do. Ooh, that might be a better, better bottom line than the bottom line. What you desire determines what you do. I've said this all my life. Not all my life, all my adult life. Adults do what adults want to do, don't they? Adults do what adults want to do. And uh, if adults don't want to do something, they usually don't do it unless they're compelled by an outside force to do it. What you desire determines what you do. Not necessarily what you ought to do always, but what you desire. And sometimes there are unnatural desires that come in. There's addictions, there's there's things that trip us up and cause us to desire something that's not good for us. And that's why we can trust that God, if we're desiring His goodness, if we're desiring His will to be done in us and through us, if we're desiring His goodness to come into the world through us, that's going to be a good desire. That's going to be a healthy desire. That's going to be a desire that will bear fruit, that will come to fruition in Him. And all of this in verse 11 is followed by one of my favorite little phrases in the scriptures, so that, right? Every time you see a so that in your Bible, circle it. He's made the application clear for us. So that we pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. Now we're talking. Not only in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying this prayer so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and us in Him. He's praying that Christ's name and reputation would be glorified, that people would come to the conclusion through our lives in the world that God is good all the time, that they would see His name glorified in us and us glorified in Him. And so a good little time out, little question, maybe write it down, how much glory is God getting in your life? Maybe it's a lot. I would imagine there's a continuum. Those that are experiencing this, this sermon today, those in the room, those online, there's a continuum. There would be people that very, very little glory is coming to God through the way that they live their lives. 
And yet there would be people that a lot of glory is coming to God through the way they live their lives. They're authentic in their faith. They're generous. They're willing to serve. They're always looking for ways to reach people, to touch people, to bring glory to God through the way they live their lives. But a second question came to me as I was processing that, and it was kind of rooted in this little, little phrase, Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And I thought, how much of my glory is rooted in him? How much of your glory, the things that you're known for, the things that people give you glory for, are rooted in Christ, rooted in your relationship with him? It's a good question to think about. It's a good question to ponder because Paul is praying all of these things that God would empower our every desire for goodness and our every deed done in faith so that Christ would be glorified in us and us in him, that we, the glory we receive would be rooted in him, in our relationship with him. And all of this according to his grace, according to his unmerited favor, lest we get the idea that we earn it, or that, oh, if I, if I don't do these things, then, you know, I'm not going to go to heaven when I die. It's not that. It's motivated by his grace. It's motivated by his unmerited favor. It's motivated by what he has already done for us that compels us to go and to do, because what you hope for shapes what you live for. So whose, whose glory are we hoping for, mine or his? Whose glory am I living for, mine or his? It's, good, it's a good question to check in on yourself every now and then. Because we have an enemy and he likes to get us off course and he likes to take good things that aren't best things and make them ultimate things so that the ultimate things get neglected. Does that make sense? He likes to take good things in our lives that aren't the best things, that aren't the most important things, but make those the ultimate things in our lives so that we'll forget about what should be in first place. We'll forget about that relationship with God. We'll forget about doing things for His glory because we get a lot of glory over here for doing this stuff. And so another good question, you know, as we bring this full circle is, so what, Pastor Mark? <laughs> Neat story. Interesting teaching. But so what? Like, how are we going to be different tomorrow? Because we came to church today. And, and what needs to change in us individually and corporately? And what will we do as a result of it? And like I said, there's a continuum. Don't get this, don't, don't, don't let the enemy come in and whisper, oh man, he doesn't think much of us. I think the world of you. I love being your pastor. I love being a pastor of a, of a generous church. I love being a pastor of a of a church that is outward focused, that seeks to impact the world. And yet I know that, that we all have a step to take. We all have an area to grow in. And so I want to encourage each of us to do something big and to do a lot of little things. And I want you to pray through what does that look like? What's a big thing that I could do? And what are a lot of little things that I could do? Last week, we had the opportunity to hear from our friends at the community outreach and to hear about the Genesis mentoring program. And Donna shared so wonderfully about her journey through that and the training that she had received and the ability to mentor somebody in order to help them stay in their home, help them avoid homelessness. Gosh, in my poverty simulation, if I'd have been able to spend an hour with somebody that was acquainted with the resources that would walk through that process with me over the next 20 weeks or so, that would have made all the difference in the world. 
And we need mentors. In fact, we've been talking a lot about mentors as a community, and maybe you have, have been aware of this and have seen some of this. Our mayor has been talking about this a lot, about the Sioux 52 initiative, 52 hours a year mentoring somebody, an hour a week and the opportunity to come alongside, and the sociological and psychological impacts of mentoring. And he spoke to us as pastors on Thursday. There were about 60 or 70 of us at a luncheon, and he was our, our main speaker. And he stood up on the stage, and he said, we really, we really need more mentors. We really need more mentors. We've identified one of the biggest challenges in our community is 14 to 21-year-old youth who maybe have absent parents because they're working two or three jobs trying to make ends meet, or maybe it's a single parent situation, or maybe they're couch surfing uh, with friends or in bad situations. And they need a mentor. They need somebody to come alongside them. They need somebody to empathize with them. They need somebody to believe in them and to call out the best in them. And so whether it's Genesis mentoring or whether it's one of dozens of opportunities to mentor in our community, that might be one of the big things that you could do is to sign up to be a mentor and to start walking through life. And I'm not telling you it's just going to be one hour a week. I don't want you to come back to me in six months and say, man, this is taking a little more time. That's how relationships work, isn't it? They get a little messy. You start out an hour a week, and next thing you know, you're, you're helping in some way. You're doing something. You're checking in with them in between your sessions to see how they're going. And you can go to the helplinecenter.org slash Sue52, and you can find out more information. And there literally are dozens of agencies that are seeking mentors, that will train mentors, that will match mentors with people who need what you have. And so I want to encourage you to, to maybe look into that and take the step with that and get trained with that. And if you're a business owner, maybe you could unveil a program where you'll pay your employees to do that hour a week of mentoring. You'll let them do that on the clock, so to speak, where they take a long lunch one day and go and mentor somebody. I really can't think of a better way to show people that God is good all the time than to come alongside them in their time of need and be the hands and feet of Christ for them so that we're not just telling him or her that God is good. We're showing these people that God really is good all the time. And we can give credit where credit is due, and we can say, I'm here as a representative of Christ to walk through this challenging season with you. But like I said, I also want to encourage you to do a lot of little things. Do a lot of little things. Find little ways to show people that God is good all the time. We had the hygiene kits last week. You got it to today and through next week to, to bring in the hygiene kits. You can pick up one of the flyers on the table out there by the missions map. And you can go shopping, and you can bring in stuff for a hygiene kit, and you can, you can use that as a way of showing people that God is good. It's already, it's already been a blessing to see the stuff coming in, to see people that took that seriously. You could, you know, at one time we were living in West Virginia, and I-64 ran right through from where we lived to where I got off for work, and so I was often seeing people who were homeless or who were begging for food or for anything. And so I started putting these little kits together in my car with a couple granola bars and a couple bottles of water. And so when I saw somebody at an interstate on-ramp, I could just roll down the window and say, here, God bless you. Here, God is good. And hand those out. And then somebody in my congregation was a doomsday prepper and he got his hands on a whole pallet full of MREs. And so he started, we started, had the whole church 
uh, was given out MREs and bottled water to homeless people throughout the community. And uh, it, was, it was a neat thing to see, and it was neat to see that recognition, yeah, maybe God is good. Maybe this is a blessing from God that's coming to me in the form of this. And we put little cards in there to connect them to community agencies. We haven't experienced that as much here in Sioux Falls, but I'm sure it happens. I'm sure maybe on your way to and from work, that's something that would resonate. Maybe there's something else. You know, there's an opportunity this week. We could use a handful of people to come in and write a thank you card, a handwritten thank you card to every teacher at Cleveland Elementary, every person on staff. We've been partnering with Cleveland for some time. If you want to do that, check on one of the uh, extra boxes on your connection card or send us an email, office at linwoodchurch.org. Say, I could come in and write some thank you cards. And we'll put a gift card in them and tell our teachers thank you for Teacher Appreciation Week this first full week of May. So we got a little bit of time on that one. There was this time in just this last couple of weeks. I've, I've developed a little bit of a relationship with a lady at a, at a USPS counter here in town. And uh, I make frequent trips there. Uh, one of my wife's many talents is she makes handmade soap. It's really wonderful. And so people all over the country, friends, family, people gotten a hold of it, they buy it, and we ship it off to them. And uh, so this lady, finally one day, you know, we'd banter back and forth, we'd visit just a little bit. She says, what, is, what are all these packages? And so I told her, oh, it's handmade soap, and I brought her a bar, and she said she loved it and, you know, was glad to have it. Well, the last couple of weeks I noticed she just wasn't herself. She wasn't her sweet, bubbly personality. She seemed a little deflated, a little bit down, and so... On Friday or Thursday, whenever it was, I took her a couple of bars of soap, and I said, hey, I just noticed you seem like you're a little down lately. I hope this cheers you up. And she started to cry. She said, oh, you're going to make me cry. I said, well, I don't want to make you cry, you know. I mean, there's a line, and she needs to get back to work and everything, but it touched her, and it couldn't have been simpler. And I walked away from that realizing I've been on the receiving end of those situations many times in my life. And maybe, maybe that's an example of seeking God's goodness in a small way. It couldn't have been simpler. And I think the question is, do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? Are we aware of the world around us and seeing people that maybe we have an opportunity? Are we prepared? Do we, do we keep the granola bars in our car? Do we keep, you know, do we look for opportunities to bless somebody, to touch somebody? And so what could you do? What small thing could you do? Who could you touch in some small way? Who could you show that God is good all the time? Because what you hope for, what you watch for, what you look for, shapes what you live for. What you desire determines what you do. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the time to worship you and to learn from you. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit now would come and would help us to apply this to our lives. Bring somebody to mind right now. And maybe we, maybe we do so many things and we're thinking, I don't know what else I can do. I don't know who else I can touch. I would encourage those that might be feeling that way or thinking that way to ask another question. Who could I involve? What friend could I take with me the next time I do these things? Who could I encourage to take their own step to multiply the impact of this? And Lord, as we desire 
you and we desire your goodness. May we find ourselves rivers of your love and your blessing and your favor flowing through our lives into the lives of those around us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.